a sweet moment that I take periodically is I will walk throughout cemeteries. Have you ever done that? If you've never done it, I would encourage you to do it, but just by yourself, walk a cemetery. Recently, I was walking through a cemetery here in our community, and I was looking at the tombstones, reading names and dates, and all kinds of questions were running through my mind. What was their life like? Who did they love? What kind of choices did they make? How did they die? Where are they now? Did they believe the gospel? Did they trust in Christ and they are with him experiencing everlasting joy in life? Or did they reject the gospel and they're forever separated from God? You see, there's something sobering about the reality of death. No one can escape it. Regardless of how wealthy you are, how powerful you are, what your skin color is, how much money you make, what kind of influence you have in the world, everyone is going to die. And you see, if you know Jesus, the reality of your own mortality is actually good news. It's this understanding that there's coming a day when you take your last breath and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You will receive your reward and there is great joy that is ahead of you. That this earth, this place where we are right now is temporary, it's passing, it's fading, it's not permanent. But if you don't know Christ, death is something you should be afraid of. And not only the reality of your own mortality, but what comes after it. But you see, there's hope that through faith in Jesus, God gives you a path forward. He points you to a future day in which you will be with him forever. One of the things I love uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter 2 one of the things that Jesus accomplished through the cross was that he got rid of, he destroyed not only Satan, but also fear of death. In Hebrews chapter two, he says, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, with, in common, Jesus also shared in these, okay, so Jesus took on flesh and blood just like us, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, watch this, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. One of the things that Jesus died for at the cross was to help set you free from fear of death. And one of the ways he does this is not only through his death, but as we're gonna see today, through his burial, and through his resurrection, that you do not have to fear death all because of the death of Christ. And you see, the reality of our mortality is good. It gives you wisdom. It helps you understand how to leverage your life. And it's amazing how the drama of this world goes away when you realize that not long from now you'll be covered up with dirt and forgotten by the vast majority of the world. Solomon says it like this in Ecclesiastes 
It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. You see, there is wisdom to be gained by remembering our mortality. And the gospel speaks right into the reality of our own mortality. And it's through Jesus identifying with our our death, identifying with us in death, that it's through him we experience eternal life. And that's what we see happening in Mark 15. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. We've been studying the gospel of Mark uh, for quite a long season as a faith family, and we are rounding third and, and headed for home. As we have seen in Mark's gospel, he's primarily writing to a Gentile audience. After spending a significant amount of time with Simon Peter, traveling the nations, preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, Mark has been prepared and equipped to write this gospel account. Now, unlike Luke and Matthew, who begin their gospel at the birth of Jesus, and unlike John, who begins his gospel at the creation of the world with Jesus, we see here in Mark chapter 1, where he begins at his baptism. And it's from the baptism of Jesus forward that we see the miracles of Jesus, where he is preaching with power and with clarity and with authority. We see Jesus as the one who is the miracle worker who walks on water, multiplies food, heals the sick, and raises the dead. This is a fast-paced, hard-hitting gospel account. We see Jesus on the move. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 15, Good Friday has been a physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually excruciating day for Jesus. He has been falsely accused, lied about. He has faced six different trials, punched, spit on, mocked, laughed at, hit with sticks, tortured, flogged, and crucified. The centurion who is in charge of all of this that's taking place at the cross looks upon Jesus and says, truly, he is the son of God. And off in the distance are these women who have been following Jesus and they're watching everything that has taken place. And that is where we pick up in Mark 15, beginning with verse 42. The scripture says this, when it was already evening because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene, And Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. For six hours on Good Friday, Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, hung on the cross. And then, verse 37, he breathed his last. Jesus has died. I want you to notice this morning what's happening in the text and what this means for us. 
I want you to see first the confirmation of Jesus' death. The confirmation of Jesus' death. The Sabbath was approaching at sundown. Now keep in mind, that's the way that the Jewish day uh, is different from, it's distinct from ours. So for us, our day, it goes from uh, midnight, you know, in the morning, all the way up to 11.59 p.m. That's a day for us. Well, in the Jewish calendar, the Jewish day is different. Their day begins at sundown, usually about the six o'clock time frame. And so from sundown on one night, on one night all the way to sundown the next, uh, next night, that's one full day. Well, this is what's happening here. We see that this reality of the next day, the Sabbath, starting sundown on Friday night, is creating some urgency. The Jews get this idea of sundown to sundown from Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, There was evening and there was morning the first day. So the Sabbath begins on Friday at sundown, and there is absolutely no work that is to be done until Saturday at sundown. And it's an entire day of rest. Now, according to verse 42, Friday was preparation day. It's the day to get everything ready for the next day's Sabbath. Well, with the Sabbath approaching, Joseph of Arimathea was rushing to get Jesus' body buried because Jewish law demanded that those who were executed receive a proper burial. Deuteronomy 21 says, if anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed and you hang his body on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Well, what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus is the innocent one who did not deserve the death penalty, and yet he is hung on a tree. He is stapled to a cross, and he became a curse for us, the ones who were guilty. Paul says it like this in Galatians 3, 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, the curse of Genesis 3 was laid upon Jesus so that you may go free. The curse of sin and death and hell and the grave that came through the first Adam is being reversed by the second Adam. The curse of God that was supposed to be towards us because of our disobedience, because we have turned our back on God, Jesus steps in and says, I'll take it for you. I will become the curse of God for you. I will receive the punishment of God for your sin that you deserved. You see, the Father's justice was satisfied through the work of the Son, that Jesus at the cross has made a way for you to be forgiven forever. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You are forgiven forever in Jesus. This is what he accomplished through his bloody, awful death on the cross. He became the curse of God to set you free, to set you free from the curse that we were under before we knew Jesus. But in order to keep the law with Sabbath approaching, the Jews requested for Pilate to break the men's legs 
And we talked about this this last week, is that indeed uh, we talked about when you're hanging on a cross, your, your feet were nailed to, to the tree, you're nailed to the cross, and you're hanging like this with your nails between your wrists, and you can't breathe while you're hanging down here. And so you would push up with your legs to catch a breath, but then your weight would just bring you right back down. And so what the Jews are saying, Sabbath is coming. Let's get these crucifixions over with. Let's get these guys dead because we need to get them off the cross and buried in order to keep the law. And so they go to Pilate and say, hey, we need to get this thing over with. So we want you to go break their legs. And we talked about this last week that by the breaking of legs, they're unable to push up to catch their breath. And so the criminals would die by suffocation. Well, by the time they get to Jesus, he's already dead. In fact, that's what John 19 tells us, is that when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. You see, this flow of blood and water, which was mentioned by John, he's emphasizing that without a doubt, Jesus was unquestionably, undeniably, physically dead. Now, why, why is this a big deal? Kenneth, why are you hitting this so hard? Well, it's because there are many different world religions and these false philosophies and ideologies that deny this truth. Islam, for example, teaches that Jesus did not die on the cross. That indeed it was someone else. He's just, we're just confused. It was not Jesus, but someone else. In fact, there are some... Uh, very liberal um, theologians who believe that Jesus just passed out. He didn't actually die. Well, you see, if those things are true, we're wasting our time here. If Jesus did not die, call home all the missionaries, shut all the church doors, stop sharing the gospel, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if Christ has died, then indeed you and I have reason to rejoice. We have reason to gather. We have reason to send our best to the nations because we've got to get this gospel out so that all people might turn from sin and trust in Christ and be rescued. We have a gospel to proclaim. You see, if Jesus did not die, you and I are still headed for hell. But Christ did die. Christ was buried. And indeed, Christ was raised on the third day. And this gospel changes everything. And there are even witnesses, many of them, who witnessed it. Some of whom we see right here in the text. One is Joseph of Arimathea. And then we see the two Marys that are witnessing the literal bodily death of Jesus. Well, then time comes where they go tell Pilate because Joseph wants the body of Jesus. Pilate's surprised, verse 44, that Jesus was dead. And the reason he's surprised is that often people would die on a cross. It would take sometimes days for them to finally die. So we ask the centurion, an expert on crucifixion, is this Jesus of Nazareth dead? And the centurion confirms, yeah, he's dead. Even the Pharisees who hated Jesus, they knew that he was dead. For in Matthew's gospel, we see that they went to Pilate asking for soldiers to guard the tomb of Jesus because they were afraid that if the disciples came and stole Jesus' body away, they would claim that he was raised from the dead. 
And so Pilate says, absolutely, go and secure it however you need to. So soldiers stand guard in front of the tomb of Jesus. It is sealed with the Roman seal so that no one can have access. And if you break access into this seal, you break access of the seal to get into the tomb, it's punishable by death. And so we see this defense that's put in place. So it has been confirmed all throughout that indeed Jesus has died. You see, this is significant because this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of what it means to be rescued from hell. This is what it means to be no longer under God's judgment because Jesus was fully judged for us. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, what I, uh, what I proclaim to you, what I passed on to you as most important, first priority, this is the most important thing. If you forget everything, don't forget this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the heart of the gospel. We have to grab hold of this reality. You as an individual must believe this truth or you cannot be saved. You cannot be rescued. It is essential for you to understand that Jesus' death was for you. That he was buried for you. And he was raised for you. This is what we as believers hold fast to, we believe, we affirm, and this is a hill we'll die on. Because if we get away from this truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have abandoned the very heart of God. This is God's plan of rescuing you and saving you and bringing you back into a right relationship with himself. And if we minimize the cross, if we minimize the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, we are robbing God of glory. Look and behold what God has done for you in the gospel. That you are so loved that Jesus goes and takes your place. The curse of God falls upon him on the tree. That he gladly takes it so that you can go free. You can walk in the purpose and the joy of Christ in this life because now the worst thing that can happen to you has already happened to Jesus. You see, death is not the worst thing that could happen to you. Jesus died for you. The judgment of God falling upon you, it's off the table because the judgment of God fell upon Jesus. The reality of hell is no longer true for you if you're in Christ. Because through the cross, Jesus took the hell so that you are set free. Do you see what Christ has accomplished? Behold the significance of what's happening here. We have confirmation in the scriptures that indeed Jesus is the one who died. He is the one who was buried. And by you believing this, it not only affects where you're going to be in five years, but in five billion years. The gospel changes everything. The gospel is true. I want you to see secondly in the text, the courage of Joseph before Pilate. Since it was a day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross during the Sabbath. And Joseph knew that this means that Jesus' body would probably be thrown into a mass grave or 
his body may have been, even been thrown down into the valley of Hinnom outside of the city. Verse 43, it says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. The question I've been wrestling through this week is, why was it considered bold for Joseph to go and claim Jesus's body? What is so bold about this? Well, we gotta keep in mind that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a high court significant leaders in Jewish religion and Jewish life, Jewish culture. It's the top 70 leaders. It's a place of position, of prominence, of prestige and honor. It's an important thing. It's a big deal to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Matthew tells us that he was a rich man. Jo Joseph was a guy who had a lot of money, which is actually fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9, that indeed the Messiah was assigned a grave with a rich man at his death. Now, according to John 19, 38, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. Okay, now that's kind of shocking. Like, okay, so a guy on the Sanhedrin is a disciple of Jesus. And yet he goes on to say in John 19, but he was fearful of the Jews. He was scared of, scared of what these guys would do to him if they found out that he was a disciple of Christ. And yet, verse 43, he boldly went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I put this in your notes. Boldness, of Jesus, boldness for Jesus requires two things. First is taking risks. It requires taking risks. Pilate could have implicated Joseph for high treason against Rome since he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Remember, Pilate had been bullied that day by the Sanhedrin. It's late afternoon, early evening. The crowds have dispersed and in comes Joseph. His very presence could have easily triggered, he could have sparked anger in Pilate that indeed Joseph could have faced the very wrath of an angry Roman governor who had had a very bad day. And yet Joseph goes anyways. Don't miss this reality. The death of Jesus compels believers to take risks for the gospel. When you see what Christ has done for you in the gospel, it compels you to take risks. It, 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 there's something that when you see his, his suffering, his martyrdom, his death on the cross, you are compelled to say, my goodness, if he went through that for me, what can I do for him? In light of the love that he has shown me, I'm compelled to go and take risks for Christ. John Piper says it so well in his book, Risk is Right. He says, if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. For Joseph, his, his physical safety and his financial wealth were on the line. He was risking status and influence and affluence all for the sake of Jesus. What about you? Are you willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel? Are you one who is saying, in light of who Christ is and what he has done for me in the gospel, I'm willing to take risks. 
I'm not going to hold fast to my money and say, this is mine. And God, this is what I'm going to protect. There are no risks here. This is what I need to make sure I have to get me to my final death. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking, I mean, there's no way I can risk my influence. I've got a good name in the community. I'm a really important person. How in the world can I take a risk? I've got to protect who I am. May that not be said of us. We have to look and see what Christ has done and may it compel you and compel me to take risks that we're gonna put our name out there for the sake of Jesus. We're gonna try things in which it may not be popular with the world. Jesus said it like this in Mark chapter eight, verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel We'll save it. Are you holding tight to your own life? Do you find your life more precious than Christ? Do you see yourself as one who has to play it safe? I want to make sure I've got comfort in my life. I don't want to upset the apple cart. I want to make sure that we're happy, healthy, no risk. That's not the way of Christ. Is that as a disciple of Jesus, we don't consider our lives as precious to us, us. Rather, we consider our lives as already being crucified with Christ and we no longer live. But the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, risk is right when it comes to the gospel. We're not people who are trying to keep worldly comfort. We're not a people who are trying to play it safe. We're a people who've been ransomed from sin, death, hell, and the grave. And now we are free to go and rescue the perishing, to go and live lives that are bold for the Lord Jesus Christ, unashamed of the gospel, because we've got a story to tell. And the gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. C.T. Studd said it like this. Some want to run a church under the sound of a church bell. I want to run a rescue mission just outside of the gates of hell. There's got to be a sense in which where you don't consider your life as precious to you. You're saying obedience to Jesus and his great commission is far more important than anything that I can have or hold on to in this world. You see... If you're going to be faithful to Christ, it's going to require you to take risks with your life. But the second thing we see is that boldness means losing your reputation. Losing your reputation. And you've got to be good with this. If the Sanhedrin had found out what Joseph was doing, he could have been expelled at least from the Sanhedrin. You see, being a member of the Sanhedrin, it meant you were respected in the Jewish community. You had a position of honor and influence. And here is Joseph risking that. He's putting his reputation on the line to identify with Jesus here. And there's no reason for Joseph to do this act of kindness, by the way. There's nothing in it for him right here. As far as he knew, the movement was over. Jesus was dead. Nobody was expecting a comeback. Nobody was expecting the resurrection. And yet for Joseph, he's far more concerned about Jesus than his own reputation. And though he was fearful that the Jews might find out what he was doing, he did it anyway. Question, are you ashamed of Jesus? Are you ashamed of the gospel? 
Are you willing to be mocked, belittled, laughed at, left off homecoming court, lose popularity, lose friends, lose influence in your office for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to be a bold witness for Jesus in the midst of a world that's telling you to calm down? Keep that Jesus thing in your church. Don't bring that out into the world. We don't need that. Are you going to let your light shine bright for the glory of Christ? Or are you going to allow the world to dictate to you how, allegiance you're, how much allegiance you're going to have towards Christ? Here's the test. Are you willing to go to work tomorrow, go to school tomorrow, go to your practice tomorrow, and share your testimony? Are you ready to share the gospel? Are you willing to verbally articulate the gospel to your coworkers, neighbors, and teammates? If the answer is no, you need to examine if you are a believer. You see, if you have met Jesus, he so changes your heart, he so changes your life that you're compelled to articulate the gospel. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 10. Everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my father. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my father in heaven. Are you willing to put your reputation on the line? Are you willing to be called a Jesus freak? Are you willing to be called a fool for Christ? Are you willing to be scorned and laughed at and left out? Maybe willing to lose friends, family, all for the sake of obedience to Christ. This is what we see Joseph of Arimathea doing here at the burial of Jesus. He's taking risks. He's putting his reputation on the line. But you see, in light of the cross and what Jesus has gone through, it has compelled him to so identify with Jesus that he's willing to lose wealth and influence and reputation. I say it to you, beloved, don't retreat. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't apologize for being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing we see in the text is the care of Jesus' body by Joseph and Nicodemus. As the evening shadows are settling in, Joseph gets permission from Pilate to bury Jesus' body. John tells us that there's another person there that Mark leaves out. It's Nicodemus. Now, some of you might remember Nicodemus from John chapter three, where Jesus has a late night conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. And in this conversation, Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the cover of night because he doesn't want anybody to know that he's meeting with Jesus. And what he thinks is gonna be a coffee house debate about God, he doesn't realize that he's talking to God. And he has this, this encounter with Jesus that forever changed him. For that's in that conversation that Jesus told him, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's in this conversation that Jesus tells him, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. What we see in John chapter eight is that the Sanhedrin is already 
getting stirred up about Jesus. They want to try and take him down. And who comes to Jesus' defense? Nicodemus. And then you get to the end of the Gospel of John and you see two men there at the burial of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Nicodemus brings with him, the scripture says, 75 pounds of myrrh with aloes. He brings this to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. They quickly wash the the blood from Jesus' body. They wrap him in linen cloth that Joseph had bought. They lay Jesus' body in Joseph's own tomb that had never been used before. And they roll a giant stone against the entrance. Jesus, his body is now wrapped, laid in a tomb, alone. Jesus says in John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Jesus is the grain of wheat. And he has died. And he is alone. And yet, it is through his death that he has bore much fruit. I look across this room and I see the fruit of Jesus. I see the grain of wheat that has fallen and died and through his death has now permeated the world. That indeed millions of believers all over the world all because of what Christ has done here. The seed of the woman has been buried. But as we are going to see next week, the seed is going to come forth and bear much fruit. It's the death of Jesus is God's way of saving many. All who believe upon him. It's God's way of rescue. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What do you want us to do with this information? Trust in Jesus. It's your impact point. Trust in Jesus, the one who died, was buried, and rose again. Forty years, S.M. Lockridge was a passionate, powerful African-American preacher in San Diego at Calvary Baptist Church. One of his sermons that still impacts me to this day, I want to share a portion of it with you. Here it is. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter's denying. But they don't know that Sunday's a coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday's a coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary. 
his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirits burdened. But you see, it's only Friday, Sunday's a-coming. It's Friday, the world's winning, people are sinning, and evil's grinning. It's Friday, the soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross, and they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday, but let me tell you something, Sunday's a-coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's a-coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday. But Sunday's a-coming. It's Friday, the earth trembles, the sky grows dark, my king yields his spirit. It's Friday, hope is lost, death has won, sin has conquered and Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday, Jesus is buried, a soldier stands guard and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday, it's only Friday, but Sunday is a coming. That's good news, church family. Sin does not have the last word on your life. You may be struggling right now, fearful of the future, uncertain of what is to come. We're in the midst of a pandemic. There's fear gripping our world. And those who don't know Jesus are clinging tighter and tighter to sin rather than fleeing from that and running to Christ. What are we going to do? We do not wring our hands like the Lord, because he's up there not worried about a thing. Because tomb is empty. Sunday has come. Jesus is alive. And he has the last word. Let's trust him.